0: it's the daily podcast trying to make long term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis one thing i think we can be sure of in the summer and fall of 2020 is there's no monopoly on books about monopolies in america we've already had uh, matt stoller david uh, diane and zephyr teach out on on the show uh, Diane talking about his new book, Monopolized. Uh, Stoller's book is Goliath. Teachout has a, a new book out called Break em Up. And to join these three distinguished texts, we have a new one. There are others as well. Uh, by, the, um, by the very uh, well-known radio personality based in Portland, Oregon, Tom Hartman. He has a new book out, The Hidden History of Monopolies. Uh, Tom... What are you saying? These guys aren't saying. I'm not sure if you've read their books. You probably have. Uh, what's what are you uncovering? What uh, what have you dug up about uh, the history of monopolies that our, our listeners, our viewers, won't be familiar with?
1: Well, I, I haven't read those other books, so I'm not certain. They were they came out recently, and I wrote this book almost a year ago, um, and you know, so he was living in that space then. The 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 arc of the book is that America was birthed in a fight against monopoly. That's what the Boston Tea Party was. It was against the monopoly of the British East India company that we didn't really have a serious problem with monopoly in this country until the industrial revolution, you know, the second part of the 19th century. And uh, we developed essentially an immune system to respond to that uh, in, in 1890 with the Sherman act, it got put into It got actually used in the first consequential way by Teddy Roosevelt after the 1904 election when he got trashed by uh, uh, his political opponents for taking money from big groups. Um, And that Reagan in 82, 83 stopped enforcing the Sherman Act and all the other antitrust acts for all practical purposes. And the result of that is that the American landscape, the American business landscape today is very, very different from what it was pre-1980. And it's not different in a good way for anybody except a handful of billionaires and some very large publicly traded companies.
0: Is your narrative, Tom, that in the beginning, it's a kind of Rousseau like narrative. In the beginning, things were great in America, ideal. There there was competition. And then the evil monopolists came along and stole the freedom. Your book seems to suggest that, and the subtitle of the book is How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. What exactly is the American Dream, and how did it destroy it?
1: Well, I think the American Dream in this context is the ability to to start your own your own business. I mean, you know, it's obviously there's a bunch of different definitions of the American Dream. Um, Well, actually, it wouldn't even just be starting your own business. I mean, that has been largely eliminated by by virtually every industry in America, every sector in America, uh, now being dominated by between, you know, typically three to five corporations who function, uh, technically it's an oligopoly, but they function as if they were a monopoly, you know, Delta's prices go up $5 on a route, United's goes up $5 within 30 seconds, they're all, you know, monitoring and matching each other, and it's that way across industry and sectors. Um and and so what they've done is blocked out competition and made it much, much harder for small businesses to emerge. You know, years and years ago, well actually I one of the stories I tell in the book is of uh, Route 66, the TV show starring Martin Milner and George Maharis that premiered in nineteen sixty. And, you know, they traveled across the country in their car, and every week they were in a different city. And you knew that city because, you know, it's, hey, there's the Biloxi Diner and the Biloxi Bank and the Biloxi Hotel or the, John, you know, Johnson's uh, uh, Furniture Store that's been in the family three generations or, you know, Sam's 5 and 10 that's, you know, been in the family two generations. Those kinds of, you know, that kind of diversity, business diversity in America created a vibrant economy. When Reagan in 82, 83 stopped enforcing the Sherman Act, and we had this explosion of mergers and acquisitions, uh, they referred to it as the M&A mania. Uh, people like Michael Mil- Milken referred to themselves as masters of the universe or M&A artists. Uh, what happened was that, that diverse landscape, business landscape, got wiped out. And got replaced with very large corporations. Now you could jump out of an airplane at sixty thousand feet and land anywhere in America and have no friggin' clue where you are. Um, you know, it's all the same Applebee's and and Fridays and and Marriott and uh, Wells Fargo Bank and and I mean, you know, pick your pick your sector. So uh, along with that, not only did that you know wipe out large opportunity areas for people who want to be entrepreneurs. But it also generally drove down wages. And the other definition of the American dream typically is, is the life that my dad had after when I was around six or seven years old, he finally got a union job at, at a tool and die shop. And because of that union job for the next 40 years, he was able to take a vacation every year for a couple of weeks. Uh, he was able to buy a new car every two years. He bought a, a house that was paid off by the time he retired. That, that I think, is the definition of the American dream, and that's been wiped out also by this monopoly culture.
0: You begin the book, uh, you, your, your your metaphor for describing monopolies is a cancer on America. You begin the book by suggesting that monopolies are making things more expensive, but isn't a problem also that the new monopolies, ones perhaps like like Amazon in particular, that has destroyed the high street uh, or the, the main street in American life, is actually driving prices down. And that consumers do have some responsibility for this monopolization of American life. We can't blame everything on Reagan and a change in the law
1: actually, I disagree with you. I, I think I can. And uh, yeah, you've seen prices go down in a lot of areas and this started with Sam Walton uh, when Sam Walton died prior to when he died, you know, his slogan was hundred percent made in America. And then when he turned the, the the company over to, to professionals, they started importing stuff from China. And that was the same time that we were going through a major offshoring uh, period in the United States. Um, but uh, he, he, broadly speaking, I don't think that even though you're paying less for a toaster right now, or you're paying less for a pair of blue jeans, um, I've gone through three toasters in five years and, uh, the last toaster that I had like 10, 15 years ago, I inherited from my grandmother via my mother. It was made in the 1940s. Um, you know, things just, I, I, you know, I saw an ad yesterday for a, uh, a 1950 International Harvester Refrigerator that somebody down the street is trying to sell that works, right? 1950. So I would say that even though the junk that we're getting seems cheaper, that if you look at it in lifetime spans, and I'm talking about a lifetime of the products, it's actually far more expensive. My wife has been through three uh, air fryers now in the last two years. Um, you know, and every one was 130 bucks. Well, you know, sell me a good one made in America that actually, you know, for 250 bucks, I'd buy it. But you can't find them. So, so uh, I don't blame consumers. I, You know, this is a game. Business is a game. Game, it, just like football games, games operate with rules and referees. Those rules have been changed and, and jiggered and reconfigured and whatnot so, to benefit giant corporations and basically disempower consumers. You you don't have you you have this extraordinary illusion of choice, but the real choice is not there. In addition, I would point out that because of the monopolies here in the United States, the by and large don't exist in much of the rest of the developed world. Americans pay twice as much for internet service as any other developed country in the world on average. And our internet service is about one-fifth the quality of the developed world. We pay more than twice as much for cell phone service. We pay more than three times as much for cable TV service. Um, We pay more than twice as much for hospitalization. We pay two to three times as much for pharmaceuticals. We pay twice as much for health insurance. Um, I mean, we pay uh, between 130 and 160% more for airfares. Uh, You know, the list just goes on and on and on. The average American family is spending $5,000 a year in what I refer to as a monopoly tax um, by higher prices on goods than do people in countries where anti-monopoly laws are actually enforced.
0: Tom, in the 90s, um, there was a a lot of talk of the problems with monopolies. A lot of people were very critical of Microsoft, particularly in technology. Then, of course, we had the internet revolution and the Web 2.0 revolution, and we got the rise of supposedly spunky little companies like Amazon which have be- or, or, or Facebook or Google, which of course have become winner-take-all companies. Um, is there a, a natural winner-take-all tendency within capitalism or American capitalism, or is this itself a reflection
1: of the absence of regulation in the
0: American economy?
1: I think that, uh, and the metaphor that I use in the book is one of cancer you know in our bodies every day uh, there are cells yeah you know, i mean there's millions of cells reproducing every minute and and uh, occasionally a cell reproduces in a way that would cause it to become cancerous we have an immune system that's primed to look for those cells and and basically destroy them but occasionally one slips through either because the immune system is depressed or because the cancer is particularly aggressive sets up house somewhere in our body, and starts saying, I am the only, I'm going to take all the energy from this body. I'm going to consume it all into my particular little kingdom here. And they even reroute blood vessels around themselves. Tumors build their own vascular system. And pretty soon they're sucking up all the, or most of the energy of the body. And, you know, remember Steve Jobs in his last days looking like he weighed 60 pounds. I mean, you know, it just consumes the host. In capitalism, Monopoly does the same thing. And it does it predictably, and it does it, uh, it historically. Uh, you know, I opened the book with the story of the East India Company, the monopoly the Queen Elizabeth the first chartered in December of 1601, and by 1770 controlled most of the trade with the, with the colonies, with, you know, this country, and, or what the predecessor to this country. And so by the mid-18, or the late 1880s, Ohio figured it out first, and then Senator Sherman from Ohio did it at the national level, said, we've got to have an immune system. We've got to be able to catch these companies that try to basically consume all the energy, to lock out all the competitors, to, to, to nail down everything that moves, and thus the Sherman Antitrust Act and its subsequent errors. Um, Had those laws been, been being enforced post 1980? I don't believe that you would have seen, for example, Facebook be able to acquire Instagram. I mean, you know, Instagram was a competitor to Facebook. That's what John Rockefeller was doing in the 1890s. He was acquiring his competitors. And when he couldn't acquire them, he ran them out of business. And face, Facebook has done that with probably hundreds of companies. I know certainly at least 100 companies. Um, and it's not just Facebook. You know, Amazon has done this. Uh, Google is doing this. And they're going multi-sectoral things. Facebook, for example, if you have, or excuse me, uh, Google, for example, if you have Gmail, they literally read every single one of your emails. That's how they can correct your typing as you're typing along while you're doing your email. Just imagine for a moment, Andrew, the power that you would have if every day you could look into the the private conversations, hundreds of millions of private conversations every day and figure out what Americans were talking about. What are their concerns? What are their fears? What's buzzing? What's popular? What's not? You could, you could make massive bets in the stock market and almost always win. You could you could figure out which competitors represented a threat and which didn't. I mean, the, the power that is there just in that information is mind boggling. And then to use that power, you know, it, it, plus the power that they've gotten from their search engine, which is the other way of knowing what everybody is thinking, and then to use that power in a whole variety of ways, dozens of different ways, far more than dozens of different ways to simply increase their profits, not simply, but to increase their profits, um, is almost the definition of monopoly. Zuckerberg's doing the same thing with Facebook. He knows what everybody's thinking in this country and has the ability to radically influence it. You know, uh, Google sort of could influence by changing the order in which data is presented Facebook is like the entire algorithm is designed to influence because it draws people to whatever's the you know if it leads if it bleeds it leads kind of thing so i think we've got a serious problem with these technologies
0: we have, we do indeed have a serious problem not only with the tech companies but as you say across the economy so what do we do tom how do we fix it is it we, do we need to return to the the regulatory state of um, of the, of the FDR age? Do we need to return to the Sherman Act? Or do we need other kinds of regulation to deal with a different kind of globalized economy in the early 21st century?
1: Well, I think clearly our anti-monopoly laws need to be updated to reflect the digital age. But um, that's kind of a secondary consideration. When Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act and the anti-monopoly law of 1957, et cetera, when he stopped that, it, it led to this, this, this situation that we have right now. And it, it wasn't isolated just to the Reagan administration. Jerry Ford didn't start enforcing those laws. Jimmy Carter, uh, excuse me, uh, Bill Clinton didn't start enforcing those laws. Uh, it just, you know, it, it hasn't happened basically. Uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and obviously Donald Trump, nobody has enforced those laws. And so I would say as a starting point, let's just start enforcing the laws that are on the books. There has been, in the 70s, there was a Supreme Court case, GTE v. Sylvania, or GTE, Sylvania v. somebody else, that... kind of bought into Robert Bork's logic on this, that you know, as long as prices are low, you don't have to worry about monopolies. That needs to be addressed. But that, that was not a, decided on a constitutional basis. It was decided on an interpretation of the law itself. The law can easily be changed. So I think we just need to update our laws. We need a president who has the courage to take on these giant corporations.
0: Uh, Your book comes with a foreword from your friend and mine, Ralph Nader, who is, of course, America's most distinguished 20th century advocate for the consumer and for breaking up uh, large corporations. Um, Tom, are you disappointed with the current state of uh, the Democratic Party and particularly the Democratic candidate? I don't hear Biden talk very much about monopolies. Or do we need a more fundamental reform of the architecture of American politics? Uh, do we need to, to take money out of politics? Is that the way to save us from, uh, from monopolies? After all, to get to the regulation you want, we need to counter the power of big corporations in Washington, DC. Right.
1: Yes, we need to get money out of politics. This was the, the great crime that the Supreme Court uh, committed in 76 and 78 in the Buckley and Bellotti decisions when they said that if a billionaire or if a corporation wants to own a politician so completely that they're, princip- they're the principal source of revenue for that politician, and the politician is principally uh, doing their bidding. Uh, prior to 76, we called that corruption or bribery. Uh, Post-76, we called it free speech. That that money wasn't actually money, it was speech, and it was protected by the First Amendment. That needs to be dealt with. And then the Supreme Court doubled down on that in 2010 in Citizens United. Um, And that's going to be a big challenge. Uh, With regard to the Democratic Party, I think that uh, it's important for us to remember that when Franklin Roosevelt ran for president in 1932, his principal platform was twofold. Number one, he wanted to balance the federal budget. And number two, he wanted to reduce our tariffs. He wanted to increase trade with the rest of the world. He didn't do either of those things. In fact, he did the opposite of both of them. And and it turned out a good thing. He rose to the occasion. Um, I'm I, you know I get the importance of leadership and good management, but I'm not that big a fan of the you know uh, important man of his great man of history uh, theory of history. I think that that the times define things almost as much as the people and it seems like roughly every 80 years in this country we go through a massive reboot um 80 years ago now more or less it was the end of world war ii the, we had the great depression of world war ii and then we rebooted after that in some very substantial and different ways um ending jim crow and all kinds of things uh, 80 years before the great depression was the was the uh, great the great crash of 1856 and 1860 which led right to the civil war and we rebooted after the Civil War, 80 years before the Civil War was the American Revolution. Arnold Toynbee said that uh, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. And I think 80 years, it's like four generations. That's, That's about the time it takes for that entire institutional memory to die out and for us to repeat the mistakes that we've been making in the past. And, you know, we're repeating these, we're repeating the same mistakes we made before the, before the Great Depression. This, this era is almost a repeat of the, of the roaring 20s. And in the roaring 20s, it was almost a repeat of, you know, what was happening in the, in the 1840s through 60s. So, you know, we've been here before. I think that I'm actually fairly optimistic. And I Well, think we've that-
0: certainly been here before, you know that as well as anyone, you're a very keen historian and history laces your modern, uh, your hidden history of monopolies. Uh, we're speaking, of course, in September 2020. You wrote this book before COVID. Is the COVID crisis and the Black Lives Matter crisis and perhaps the environmental crisis now affecting, you're, you're in Portland, I'm in California, affecting the West Coast, are all these, 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 these this trinity of crisis coming together to produce um, the depth of crisis of the early 30s, uh, which will trigger again, a grand historical moment, another FDR or another FDR style movement against monopolies that will fundamentally reform the architecture of American capitalism.
1: That's my hope, Andrew, if we don't do that, and instead we go down the the Trump road, which is, you know, the merger. Well, we're
0: certainly, I don't think there are many people here watching or listening, uh, Tom, who are great fans of Trump. But what about the Biden road? Is that the third route?
1: Well, I'm not sure we know what the Biden road is. You know, Joe Biden has been changing his positions uh, fairly regularly for the last year or so as the country changes. Which you is,
0: don't sound much of a believer,
1: Tom. It's my, in my opinion, that's what you want in a politician. You know, I, my sense of politicians has always been that they very rarely are leaders, they, but they always appear to be basically what they do is they sit back and they wait until a large enough parade forms. Mm. And then they jump in front of the freight and parade hoist, hoist a flag and say, this is my parade.
0: FDR was very good at that. Wasn't that was his, that was his great skill.
1: FDR was good at that. Eisenhower was good at that. Kennedy was good at that. Lyndon Johnson was good at that. Uh, you know, uh, Reagan, to some extent, was good at that. It, it, it was the wrong parade, but, you know, it, that's what he did.
0: And is the parade on this attack on monopolies, is it formed? Do you think enough Americans actually understand? I mean, maybe, who knows whether it's right or wrong, but do more and more ordinary Americans who shop at Walgreens and Walmart and Amazon? Do they understand the power of monopolies or do they need to read your book and all these other books?
1: I think the fact that you've got four large books out this year as you opened this interview with on this topic, and none of us a year and a half, two years ago when we started writing these books knew that this was going to be, that there were going to be four books about that this year. I think it it points to the fact that the time is pregnant with that kind of of change. And I think Americans are figuring it out. They're figuring out that, you know, when they call their, their internet service provider and they're on hold for an hour, or they call their bank, or they get screwed by their bank, or their airline treats them like crap, uh, they're getting it. They're getting it in a big way.
0: Well, according to Tom Hartman, uh, the American dream can be uh, rediscovered, uh, dug back out of uh, the, 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 the cancerous nature of our current capitalist system. The Hidden History of Monopolies is a marvelous read, very very short and succinct, just like Tom himself, but other books on it. Tom, in addition to this, this book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, which everyone should read, you're stuck in Portland, I'm stuck in Berkeley in these strange, unnerving, dark days of 2020. What else should people be reading during the crisis?
1: I would uh, recommend Bregman's hum- Humankind. Ah, Rutgers
0: Bregman, the the, 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 the the Dutch historian.
1: Yeah, he, he, he basically rebooted um, uh, Peter Farb. Peter Farb wrote two brilliant books. One was called Man's Rise to Civilization. It was about first contact in the 1600s with uh, 35 different Native American tribes. And it's just absolutely mind-boggling. And then he wrote a sequel to that called Humankind. And Bregman's book almost identically follows peter farb's book but this was farb wrote that book in the late 60s early 70s and so bregman has updated it and and documented uh some really really great science that gives me a lot of hope frankly i i i, I think i bought 10 copies of that book to give away to friends and family
0: i've known Rutger for, for years actually i knew him when he was was unknown has he been on your show no he hasn't well He's Rutger, if you're watching you have an, oh, certainly an over invitation to my show, and I'm guessing uh, to Tom's as well. Absolutely. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com See you next week, and thanks so much
1: for listening.